0: When our um, boys have had their 18th uh, birthdays, and uh, that's two of them now, which um, makes me feel quite old, um, we've, um, well I say we, but actually it's been Liz, has put together a photo book of um, their lives up to this point. first picture is of them as a newborn baby in their mother's arms in a hospital, um, being cuddled by their mother. We could have included um, a picture of the the ultrasound scan at 20 weeks or even 12 weeks, which would have been the the first time we saw an an image of them. We could maybe have included a a picture of the pregnancy test at, at six weeks or so, which showed that Liz was pregnant. What do we consider was the moment they became a human being? There are lots of views uh, ranging from fertilization to implantation to 14 days to viability um, to birth. The difficulty, of course, is that once you choose one of those moments, what you're saying is that before that moment, whether it was a second, an hour, a day, or whatever, you didn't exist as a human being. So it's a hugely important question because it impacts a whole load of, uh, of ethical issues such as abortion, contraception, embryo experimentation, prenatal screening, etc., etc. We're going to have a look at some of those different views this evening. And we're going to have a look at what the Bible says about the start of human life and we'll look at the ethical implications of that. We'll look at the, the pastoral implications of that as well. But I think we need to start with a more fundamental question, which is, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? Well, the first thing is that we are made in the image of God. Genesis 1 says God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And the fact that we bear the image of God means that uh, as humans, we are different from the rest of the created order. Yes, there's lots we have in common with, with animals uh, in terms of our body structures, our organ systems, our functions, etc. We're meant to look after animals. But of course, we are different. We have a special status. We've been given authority To rule over the created order. The next verse in Genesis says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The key difference is that we were made for a relationship. With God. We can know God. And that is a relationship that is meant to last for eternity. God said it is not good for man to be alone because God made people as relational beings uh, like himself. And so we're made to relate to each other, to enjoy companionship. Being made in the image of God also means that uh, we have the capacity to make moral choices, to decide what is right and what is wrong. There are boundaries for human behavior, which um, God set in the Garden of Eden. But of course, human beings made the wrong choice. They were disobedient to God. As a result, we are now all sinners by nature, which is the second aspect of what it means to be human. We are sinful by nature. As David said in Psalm 51, he said, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It's not that we're born innocent and uh, somehow become corrupted by the society in which we live. It's part of what it means to be living as a human after the fall. It means we cannot help but sin. As soon as we are born as a tiny baby, we, we sin. We don't need to be taught how to do it, we do it naturally. But because we are made in the image of God, because we are the pinnacle of his creation, God is keen to redeem us, to forgive us for our sin, and to one day restore that perfect image in us. Well, if that's what it means to be human, when does human life begin? Well, different people choose to draw the line marking the start of human life at different points. Uh, But let's have a look at um, some of those. And for this, I'm grateful to um, this book here. They're called The Human Journey, written by Dr. Peter Saunders, who is the um, uh, chief executive of the Christian Medical Fellowship. Some of the, the different options. One of those is fertilization. This is the point where the sperm and the egg successfully fuse and a genetically unique individual comes into being. Implantation. The fertilized egg passes along the fallopian tube connecting the ovary to the, the body of the uterus. At this stage, the cells are dividing. And as the embryo develops, at around seven to 10 days after fertilization, the embryo implants in the wall of the uterus or the womb. That's when the pregnancy test becomes positive. So at this stage, the embryo consists of hundreds of cells. Some embryos fail to implant, but it's difficult to know. How many? The nervous system. This is the point at which the embryo forms a brain and a nervous system, or a capacity for consciousness. It takes place about 14 days after fertilization, which is why the Warnock Committee chose 14 days as the, the latest time that experimentation could be carried out on a human embryo. Organ development. About four weeks after fertilization, the heart begins to beat and after seven weeks, all the main organs are in place. At this point, the embryo is known as a fetus. Quickening, this describes the moment when the woman feels the baby moving inside her, which is usually around 18 weeks in the first pregnancy, maybe a couple of weeks earlier in subsequent ones. The preborn baby is active many weeks before that, but the movement cannot be detected by the mother. Viability, others emphasize the point at which the baby is viable and that it it can survive outside the womb. An age which has come down with development of uh, neonatal care, but is now believed to be around 23 to 24 weeks. And then finally, first breath. Some believe that the first breath is the moment of the beginning of real human life, 40 weeks after fertilization. Well, if those are the main options that people propose, what does the Bible say? Does it say anything about this particular uh, issue? Well, let's go back to Psalm 139, which Helen read for us. And in terms of the flow of this psalm, the psalmist begins by reflecting on his relationship with God. God the creator, and being amazed at the fact that God knows him perfectly. Verse 4 shows how even before he utters a word, God knows what he's going to say. It's, a, it's an intimate relationship. But there's also a feeling of being hemmed in. Verse 5 says, he hem me in behind and before. It's a sense of needing space. So he asks the question, verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. He realizes that there is nowhere that he can go without God being there because God is everywhere. But he acknowledges that that's not necessarily a bad thing because in verse 9, if he says, If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. The presence of God is a comforting thing. But if God is everywhere in space, what about time? What if the psalmist goes back in time in his own personal history? Would there be a time when God was not there? But again, he realizes that however far back he goes, God was always there. Have a look at verse 13. were written in your book before one of them came to be. And what does this tell us about the start of life? Well, in John Stott's book, um, this one here, Issues Facing uh, Christians Today, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with. It's a great book, by the way, if you uh, care to uh, get a hold of it. It's got all sorts of um, issues it tackles, global issues, um, wars, human environment, um, poverty, rights, work, unemployment, um, Marriage, divorce, etc., etc. A great book to get hold of that. He acknowledges that this passage is not meant to be, first of all, a textbook on embryology. Um, in the same way, the Genesis is not meant to be a textbook on um, geology or cosmology. After all, the, the, the psalm uses poetic, uses figurative language, uh, like being woven together in the depths of the earth. But stop claims that this passage affirms three truths and the first of those is god as creator affirms creation as we've seen in verse 13 it states clearly for you created my inmost being you knit me together in my mother's womb similar language is used in the book of job where job says your hands shaped me and made me you molded me like clay It's the language of a potter. But Job also uses the weaving language we have here when he says, Did you not clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? Well, even if we have no skills ourselves in pottery or weaving, we recognize the skill and the creativity that is involved in it. And what the psalmist is saying here is that the growth of the embryo is not something that just happens. It's the deliberate work of a divine artist. You can't just chuck a piece of clay onto a potter's wheel and expect it to turn into something beautiful. There is nothing haphazard about God's creation of human beings. It is intentional, it's personal. God saw you, He knew you. Each of you is a unique individual. The second point he makes concerns continuity. The psalmist here is now an adult, but he's looking back over his life to the moment before he was born. And he refers to himself by the same personal pronouns, I and me. Because during his, his antenatal life and his postnatal life, he was and is the same person. He doesn't talk about himself as, as an embryo or a fetus, whether he was in the womb or out of the womb whether he was a child or an adult it was the same person and we see that continuity also in the new testament where the the, the greek word used to describe elizabeth's baby in in the womb brephos is the same word used to describe jesus when he was born and the same word to describe young people brought to jesus for blessing continuity and the third truth uh, he affirms is communion it's amazing the way the psalmist expresses this relationship with god in this passage i you i you the whole time 46 times you have the first person 32 times the second person he's aware of a very personal communion between god and himself the same god who created him now sustains him he knows him He loves him. He would always hold him fast. He would always be faithful to his covenant with him. The fact that when the psalmist was a baby in the womb, he was probably not aware of anything is is not important. What does matter is that God knew the psalmist as an unborn baby, and that's what gives him significance. Stott says, The fetus is neither a growth in the mother's body, Nor even a potential human being. But already a human life. Who though not yet mature. Has the potentiality of growing into the fullness of the individual humanity. He or she already possesses. Okay well this is one psalm. But where else can we go in the Bible to to get together an idea of what human life is and where it starts. Well God calls the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah. Isaiah. Uh, Before birth, Isaiah 49 says, Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he's spoken my name. In Jeremiah 1, we read, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. We've already mentioned how David knew that he was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. there are apparently over 60 references to conception in the Bible, emphasizing its importance. In Matthew 1, an angel tells Joseph what is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. A few days after receiving the news, Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who is six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And as they greet one another, we're told that the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy recognizing that he was in the presence of the Christ child, even though Jesus would have been only a couple of weeks old. In God's foreknowledge, we each have an identity and we have a purpose in God's mind. God plans, he oversees that that process, including the physical coming into existence, which starts at fertilization. So although it doesn't state it explicitly in the Bible, what is strongly inferred from all these examples is that human life should be fully respected from the moment it begins. And conception, the beginning of life, is a process that begins with fertilization, the point at which a genetically distinct human being comes into life. Now, there are objections to this position that some people will raise. Some will um, argue in terms of potential that human embryos uh, and even fetuses are, are, are not actual human beings but potential human beings who acquire full human status either gradually through pregnancy or at some given point. But the trouble with that view is, is that human development is a continuous process, isn't it, that, uh, that begins with fertilization, but then each stage just merges seamlessly into the next. Others argue rationality, the respect for human beings, comes with an ability to think rationally and an ability to relate. But then you're valuing someone on the basis of their brain function rather than just being human. And what does that say about those with dementia? Do we not value them as human beings? Survival. Some argue that um, embryos are only worthy of respect when they can survive before birth. But many babies are born with low survival chances. Does that make them subhuman? the men's curry night the other night, uh, the speaker Josh uh, Fortune shared how he was born with uh, an abnormality which meant that his parents were told he wouldn't survive a couple of days. There was nothing they could do for him. But miraculously, God healed him. Now, does that mean that before God healed him, he wasn't really a human being? What if then that the Bible was teaching us that human life starts... Uh, fertilization. What are the ethical implications of that? I should mention, if you haven't guessed already, I have no medical qualifications, so I'm applying biblical practice to, th- to these issues. Um, Two the books so that are helpful in this debate are um, the one I mentioned earlier, The Human Journey, um, but also Matters of Life and Death, um, written by John Wyatt, who's a professor of ethics and Perry. Um, uh, natology at UCL. Good books, again, to, to go into these issues in greater depth. Um, the obvious issue is abortion is one issue, isn't it? And if you accept the biblical teaching that fer- uh, that from fertilization the baby is a living human being worthy of respect, then there will be no time limit that makes abortion acceptable. Under the Abortion Act of 1967, an abortion can only be carried out if two doctors are of the view that the continuance of the pregnancy would involve either risk to the life of the pregnant woman or risk of injury to her or her existing children's physical or mental health greater than if the pregnancy were terminated, or thirdly, substantial risk that if the child were born, it would suffer from such physical or mental abnormalities as to be seriously handicapped. Since that date... Over 8 million abortions have been carried out in Britain, with 98% of them on the grounds of protecting the mental health of the mother. And virtually all are carried out by doctors, even though they're meant to accept the Hippocratic Oath, which includes the words, "'I will give no deadly drug to anyone if asked, nor suggest any such counsel. And in like manner I will not give to a woman a pastry to procure abortion.'" That oath was updated by the Declaration of Geneva in 1948, which still included the promise, I will maintain the utmost respect for human life from the time of conception. Linked to the issue of abortion is that of prenatal screening. When Liz was um, pregnant with Zach, we were told that um, uh, there was a possibility of Down's syndrome and we're advised to have an amniocentesis to, to be sure about that. Uh, the procedure in itself carries a risk of, of miscarriage. Now, we had to think seriously, would it actually make any difference if we knew that our baby had Down syndrome? Um, we both agreed that it wouldn't, in which case we decided what actually was the point of having a test, particularly if there was a chance of causing unnecessary death. Over the last 20 years, the number of babies being diagnosed with Downs has increased by over 70%. But the number of babies being born has reduced because of improved pre-screening. These are real issues that I'm sure many of you will be aware of. Some f- contraception, some forms of contraception, namely the coil and the morning-after pill, don't um, prevent fertilization, but they work by preventing an early embryo from implanting the wall of the uterus embryonic research many embryos have been used in research to develop treatments for infertility and to investigate other genetic abnormalities and that's been made possible by the, the two Human Fertilization and Embryology Acts of 1990 and 2008 which followed that Warnock report that stated that the human embryo has special status but didn't go far as to say it was a human life with rights. And so the limit put on research was 14 days because that's when the embryo forms a brain and a nervous system. Well, if those are all the ethical implications, what are the pastoral implications of of these? The first one is that whatever the circumstances of our birth, we are all designed by God And we are all loved by God. There is no such thing as an accidental birth in God's eyes. There's no such thing as an unwanted child in God's eyes. Even if your parents did not plan to have you, even if they didn't didn't want to keep you, even if you don't know your biological parents, you are here because God created you. What Josh Fortune also said of the Men's Curry Night was that he met his future wife when she was pregnant by someone else. She knew she'd uh, uh, made a mistake, but uh, despite the advice of some friends, she refused to take the easy option and have an abortion. And uh, Josh and, his, uh, uh, and uh, this, this girl got, ended up getting married, and um, they now have a child who has a loving father. If a baby has been conceived, he or she is loved by God. We are all loved by God. Secondly, Christians need to support the unborn child and the mother. Christians have to support the life of the unborn child because if they don't, no one else will. But when Christians try and defend the unborn child who cannot speak for himself, they're often accused of having no regard for the rights of women. In Northern Ireland, where there's a lot of pressure to adopt the same laws as abortion in the rest of the UK, there's an organisation called Both Lives Matter. And they estimate that there are over 100,000 people alive today in Northern Ireland because Northern Ireland didn't enact the Abortion Act. And they say on their website, women deserve better than abortion. Our health care providers must be proactive and have services in place so that women and families in the midst of a pregnancy crisis have real choices. If a woman feels she has no choice other than abortion, that is not real choice. Individual care pathways should be available, which are centered on their well-being and that of their child. So we need to encourage women with an unplanned pregnancy not to take what appears to be the easy route in terms of causing least disruption to their lives. And it's not just encouraging them in that decision, it's also supporting them in the rest of their lives. Some of you here may have daughters who become pregnant one day outside of marriage. And you may have to provide a lot more help than would normally be expected of a a grandparent. As a church, we need to be a place where people can come without fear of being judged. Which brings us on to our last point. Whatever we've done wrong in the past, we can all find forgiveness at the cross. For many women who've had abortions or men who have encouraged women to have abortions, they may still be suffering a lot of mental and emotional anguish. It may have been many years ago, but even though they've asked God for forgiveness, they may still feel that sense of guilt. But the Bible is clear, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The forgiveness that Jesus brings through his sacrifice on the cross for our sakes takes away guilt. It brings life and it brings freedom. And if God looks at you as innocent, then who are we to call ourselves guilty? The Bible doesn't just give instruction, it teaches through real life stories. Uh, One of the most powerful ones being that of the story of David. Here is King David, God's anointed king, who is guilty not just of adultery and getting a married woman pregnant but of having her husband killed. And in Psalm 32, David describes his anguish. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then David says, then I acknowledge my sin to you, And did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Then comes the hope. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Even with murder and adultery, sexual sin and taking the life of another. His sins were forgiven. God provides restoration. He provides freedom in Christ. These are the truths that we need to communicate and particularly to women who are hurting, so they may find hope and healing in Jesus Christ. Well, this has been a, you know, a very difficult subject to address, as I'm sure you are aware, because it's emotional. But this is real life, and uh, you know, we can't uh, just not go to these subjects and be silent on them. God's Word does have something to say about them, and we do need to talk about it, because... Um, it's important for the unborn baby. It's important for, for the sake of a mother. And it's important for the sake of each one of us here. We all want to be able to say, as the psalmist says, I praise you, God, because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well.